around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the first episode of 2022 of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Seven Engineers. I'm going to be joined by our reporter, Catherine Kennedy, today as we look through some of the projects that are truly putting digital engineering into practice and gaining real benefits too. We have two case studies that we're going to be exploring today, one from the UK and one from the United States, that are each using different technologies to improve project delivery, reduce risk and create better outcomes. While they are quite different projects, they both have one thing in common, and that is that they are already award-winning. So both projects were winners at Bentley Systems Year in Infrastructure Awards last month. So I had the pleasure of being a juror for the awards, and there were some great examples of digital technology in action in all of the entries, but these two really stood out. So I expect you're wondering what the projects are and which categories they won. Well, the winner in the UK was in the Rail and Transit category and was a joint entry from Network Rail and Jacobs through application of digital twins to the TransPennine route upgrade. And we'll be joined by Jacobs' Steve Yule in a moment to find out more about that project and why and how it's using digital twins. The winner from the US comes from the Road and Rail Asset Performance category and the entry came from Collins Engineers for the surveying work ahead of the Stone Arch Bridge Rehabilitation Project in Minneapolis. Later on, we'll be joined by Collins engineers Barrett Lovelace to learn more about the challenges of that project and learn what his team did that delivered a real step change. So first, let's speak to Steve, who is Senior Associate Director and Practice Group Lead for Intelligent Asset Management at Jacobs. Steve leads on technical input globally for high profile infrastructure projects across the highway, rail and utilities sectors, focusing on asset management, digital delivery and digital twins. He has in-depth experience at working across all stages of the infrastructure life cycle, giving him a clear perspective of the opportunities and challenges of ensuring alignment between each life cycle stage. Additionally, Steve led the creation and implementation of the digital vision for the TransPennine Route Upgrade Rail Programme, which is often referred to as TRU. He is a chartered civil engineer and fellow of the Institution of Civil Engineers and is particularly proud of becoming a fellow at the age of 36. Steve is also a fellow of the Chartered Institution of Highways and Transportation and a member of the Institute of Asset Management. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Steve. Uh, thank you, Claire. An absolute pleasure to be here to, uh, to share what we've done on the programme. Congratulations on your win at the awards last month. Before we look at what your team did with NetRail to make you award winners, can you set the scene and explain to our listeners in the UK and perhaps those outside the rail sector too about what the TransPennine route upgrade is and the scale of challenge that it presents? So the TransPennine route upgrade is a multi-billion pound railway upgrade programme. 
it's aiming to be a world-class leading program uh, and set a real benchmark for, for other, other programs to follow. It aims to deliver passenger-focused benefits across the Transpennine route, which is a route between York and Manchester via Leeds and Huddersfield. It's 100 kilometres of track, and it also touches wider economic centres such as Newcastle and Hull in the east and Liverpool in the west. It serves 23 stations, there's 285 bridges and viaducts, six miles of tunnels, and it crosses over 29 level crossings. Uh, we're aiming for it to be a, a high-performing, reliable uh, railway for passengers, ensuring greater punctuality, more trains and improved journey times, but also support economic growth in the north uh, and deliver real benefits for passengers and communities along this pivotal rail artery. So what, what's the timescale for delivery? What, what, when did it start and when is the target finish date? Uh, yeah, so I joined uh, the Transpennine Route Upgrade in 2017. A lot of the work sort of kicked off slightly earlier in 2016, but there has been a lot of feasibility work done in the years leading up to that. Uh, in terms of the time horizon, as people have maybe seen in the Integrated Rail Plan, it was released last year, uh, the horizon on TRU is to run for, for a number of years to come. And in terms of the work itself then, can you explain what stage exactly that is currently at? Yes, no problem. Also, we're currently at an exciting sort of turning point in the programme. Sort of just mentioned that the Integrated Rail Plan was published last year, which TRU features as a huge part. If, if people haven't read that, I'd recommend uh, uh, taking a look. It really just give a, uh, a vision for how uh, rail will develop uh, in this part of the world. You know, last year we undertook a lot of design work and designs were maturing. As we enter 2022, there's a lot of energy within the programme as we move to sort of uh, still continuing design uh, efforts, but also starting to get more on-site delivery. Uh, we've also successfully set up logistics hubs and compounds along the route in areas like Gascoigne Wood, and we've got a number of community and stakeholder engagement efforts along the wider route taking place. So it's really beginning to reach an exciting stage, but when did you first realise that a digital twin was the way forward for the project? And as not everyone will know what a digital twin is, can you explain how your project team defines it and, and how you went about putting that concept into practice? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. Um, so the journey's been, I would describe it more of a, an evolution rather than a than a revolution. You know, we've been building progressively on the solid foundations created earlier in the programme on, uh, on fundamentals like good data, good information and good asset management. In terms of sort of helping listeners understand sort of what is a digital twin, it isn't a digital twin. It, it is quite a, a nebulous subject and it is, um, I would suggest there's sometimes a little bit of hype uh, in this area. Uh, there's a lot of excitement, but obviously with that com comes a little bit of hype. But for people that want good definitions, organisations like Centre for Digital Built Britain do provide some some really good definitions. So I'd recommend having a look at that. But I guess my my interpretation, the way I would try to explain it simply uh, in the rail context, is that creating a link between the physical uh, and the digital, from say from an asset perspective. So on the railway, if you have some point operating equipment, you have the physical twin, so the actual thing on the railway, the physical asset, and you're able to gather data from that, whether that be for inspections, installing, monitoring and sensing to that equipment. And then that, that starts to then feed information to your digital twin. So you're able to take data from that. And from that data, you can gain insights, you can do analytics. That allows you to look at options again within the virtual space. You can look at intervention uh, and design options. You can make decisions. You can see how those decisions link ultimately to your business need and outcomes. So managing cost, risk and performance, how you balance those. And from that, you can then actually go out and do a physical intervention on the on the physical asset itself. And then the cycle repeats itself. Then you start gathering new data and so on. And it repeats in that, that cycle. As a programme, we sit 
because uh, we're a capital program, we sit as part of that uh, life cycle. So very much focused on the taking data from sort of previous performance, understanding performance of the railway, understanding where we need to be in terms of our uh, requirements as a program, what we're aiming to deliver. We pull that data together, we do analytics, we make design decisions, then ultimately go in and affect the uh, the physical infrastructure. So we sort of sit within that broader life cycle. I suppose sort of as we've moved forward, we've we've been really very much creating a, a digital replica. But as part of that, uh, we've worked very closely with the, the end users within Network Rail, the, the routes and regions within Network Rail, uh, to to understand how our work will integrate to the future operational uh, railway and the operation of the maintenance organisation. So we're taking that full lifecycle view of how the work we do uh, fits into that future and how we can sort of also help drive and influence that future view of how the railway will operate and maintain, thereby creating this uh, full end-to-end digital twin on the railway. So was there a start date of when you started to implement the digital twin on this project? Yeah, so as sort of mentioned, it, it, it evolved. And I guess we were we were already on the journey without realising we were on the journey, if that, if that makes sense. A sort of digital twin for a lot of people is really only sort of com, come into the uh, sort of commonly known, sort of I would say more in sort of late 2019 and particularly in 2020, it became uh, quite, quite popular. But really since inception, we've been, as mentioned, sort of creating that foundation. But really it was sort of towards the end of 2019 where we started to embrace that uh, and we got the remit to really start to pursue investigate and understand the application for the Transpennine Reese upgrade. Given that it's quite a new concept, was it hard to convince your project partners and the client that the technology was needed? Or was it really very important because the fact you were trying to integrate with existing assets rather than it just being a new build project? Yeah, so I would say there was no convincing needed. Really, leadership along the along this process has always been highly supportive and they they sort of see the need for this uh, and are fully aligned to the vision. Uh, and I think that's sort of one of the, the great things about TRU uh, and it's sort of desire to be that sort of world, uh, world-class program uh, is to understand and embrace the value that digital and technologies will, will bring both in terms of efficiencies for design delivery, but then also future benefits in terms of how we operate and maintain the railway. But like a lot of things, I suppose it, you know, it has been a journey and we have needed to demonstrate the art of the possible. You mentioned before around the, the hype that, that sometimes comes with this. So there has been a little bit of, yes, we, we sort of, you know, people, people get it, they want it, they embrace it, but you do still need to show people you need to demonstrate with proof and then also back that up with continual delivery. So that's one of the things we've been very focused on is, is demonstrating these sort of proof of concepts and then actually following through and actually making sure things get, uh, get implemented. But overall, I would say it's probably the most collaborative program I've worked in uh, from this space. And on that note, the the project is at an early stage, but you have got some pretty impressive figures already about the savings that the digital twin has delivered. So can you share some of those with us? Yes, sure. No problem. So I'd say over the last 12 months, we've created, and these are conservative estimates uh, based on some of the data we've been gathering over the course of that 12 months, but around about 60,000 hours saved in terms of accessibility of information, so things like models and design information. Uh, I won't put a pound number to that at this point, mm-hmm. but you could assume a uh, you know an average cost per hour and, 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 and do that. But uh, yeah, so around about 60,000 hours uh, over the last 12 months, but also say a 40% increase in uh, information accessibility. So that's a 40% increase in the average time people are spending engaging with the environment, interacting with the data, so being uh, part of that digital environment, 
we're still working on ways to further capture benefits and we'll have some more information on that over the uh, over the coming months because it is very critical that we do demonstrate that the time and effort invested in this is providing tangible outputs and, and benefits. But I think one of the key successes was building on the early ability to capture data. So when we set a lot of the digital environment up, the digital twin up, we were considering how we can actually, because we knew we would have to demonstrate the value and benefit to not only our internal stakeholders, but other interested parties outside. So we built in ways to capture data and information. And a lot of the tools we do in terms of, uh, you know, we, we know how many users are, are engaging, where they are in the country. And we, you know, there's a, unfortunately, obviously, it, we can't do it on a podcast, but I've got a great map where we can see users all over the country accessing data and information, literally all around the, the United Kingdom, accessing data and information. Uh, and it's fascinating to see where people are are that, and you know, particularly in this uh, remote working environment at the moment. And are the savings and those figures, are they kind of in line with what you expected or are they better than what you expected or was there an expectation at all? Uh, uh, I should say it's perfectly in line with what was expected. Uh, no, but, <laughs> it, it, but like a lot of these things, you, you know it will bring benefit. But actually, I've been really pleasantly surprised by the interest and uptake and how people have embraced this. And they've embraced it in ways that hadn't we maybe hadn't initially anticipated. And as we've now created this sort of foundation, this environment for people to work within, uh, it's great to see others innovating within that space as well. So, so new, new solutions, new ideas keep spinning out of it. So uh, it's been better than I'd, I'd expected, but, but in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very encouraging. And clear, so clearly those figures, they cover the whole of the project. But could you focus us in on maybe one element of the work and explain how the digital twin is improving project delivery on a more local level? Um, and maybe you can compare as well how the technology actually allows the work to be planned differently from the more conventional approaches. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier sort of around improved sort of data and information accessibility. And sort of one of the things we, we did do on the, the program was to create a, uh, a central data warehouse. So uh, Network Rail has so much sort of data and information, but usually spread around in, in multiple sources of truth, I guess we could call them. Uh, so what we've done with the data warehouse is actually pull those different sources of truth together, together to create a, a single version of the truth uh, for the program, which has been really important. So now people on the program have very, very quick access to accurate uh, information from the wider network rail organization so that's that's been really sort of uh, important in terms of efficiency and i suppose that's allowing us to make better design decisions better planning staging of work we're able to do now do digital rehearsals but also because we're now the way we're managing this data and information uh, we're also very focused on ensuring a more efficient handback of data and information at the end of the program anybody who's worked on a large infrastructure project knows that the, the handover element is usually the uh, the part that's a little bit painful at, at the end, and usually the uh, the end user, in, in terms of say the operations and maintenance organisation, uh, often finds this a challenging process as well. So we're we're very focused on ensuring that using this environment, we're actually able to pass this the data and information back efficiently at the end. So we're leaving a positive digital legacy, not just a positive physical uh, legacy. So can you explain how using the digital twin has benefited the project during the pandemic with the switch to home working and back to hybrid working and obviously now we're back at home again? Yes, uh, so I suppose where I'd start was just you know, early in the pandemic. So we already had the uh, the teams established uh, working on the digital twin and, and digital environment. 
But earlier in the pandemic, we, we pivoted some of the team to focus very much more on how we could. So there was a problem. There was a real problem, uh, you know, that none of us had experienced before. Uh, we were going from one way of working to another way of working virtually overnight. So we pivoted the team. I had a lot of experience in in sort of you know, a digital culture, digital ways of working, and very much focused them on well, how can we help this 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 big program uh, to work more efficiently in the situation we're in. So we, you know, that was everything from helping to, to get the most out of using Teams to using the GIS BIM environment, to other collaboration tools. So that was just having the, the right people and the right capabilities there was, was extremely beneficial early on. But also because of the, the foundations we'd created, as mentioned earlier, and some of the uh, the different tools and technologies we were implementing, you know, we've been able to now create a an environment where people can work seamlessly, whether it be physically in the office or remotely. So one of the great examples of that is virtual design review. So a design review used to be done uh, typically, lots of getting lots of people into a room in an office. So uh, there was travel time, cost, you know, carpet elements of all of the travel, bringing these people together uh, to conduct these reviews. Now we can conduct those reviews in an online environment. Everybody's looking at the same image. Everybody's got the same view. We're able to track comments so we don't lose uh, inputs and so on. Um, so we're, we're now, in some ways, actually able to work more efficiently than, than pre-pandemic in, in certain areas. Given where we are in the uh, program at the moment, there's you know, still a lot of focus on design and a lot of people working on that uh, element. And that's where this having the, uh, the environment we've created has proved extremely beneficial. And it will uh, put us in good stead for years to come as we move more and more to delivery on site. What about going forward? How do you expect the digital twin to benefit the project as it progresses with delivery? Yes, I think it's going to help in, in a number of areas. Some of them I've, I've touched on, but I suppose just to, to summarise in, in some of those areas, it would be definitely uh, supporting the, the construction stages. So mentioned things around sort of digital rehearsal, so in uh, in, in sort of the BIM world, so that 4D planning and so on, and, and uh, digital rehearsals and so on. So we can actually look at the sequencing before we actually put people on site. So there's obviously benefits from a programme perspective, a cost perspective, but also a safety perspective as well, that we're able to actually conduct those digital rehearsals. Uh, quantification and tracking on-site progress. So understanding sort of in in real time or as close as we can to what's being built, what stage it's at, and actually tracking that efficiently in terms of progress and comparing that against plan. Uh, things like asset tagging and data handback, as mentioned before, so that we, uh, with the physical infrastructure we're installing, we're also capturing the necessary digital and data elements associated with those that will then become essential for the future uh, operations maintenance asset management of that infrastructure uh, and also another key sort of benefit is that sort of ongoing integration with the end user the the route in the region and i think that's one thing tiu has been been extremely good at is is engaging that end user again i've mentioned earlier uh, often in a capital project it can be very focused on the uh, the design and construction because that's that's what it's there to do but what we guess we've done a little bit differently is taking the the end user, those are people that will actually use, operate and maintain the infrastructure when we're done on the journey with us. So I think that's something the programme has, has really excelled at. And looking even further ahead, then how will the digital twin evolve to aid the operational side of the railway once the upgrade work is actually completed? Yeah, so we're already sort of taking a life cycle approach, you know, that's been part of the philosophy since we, we started it. So we, we are already sort of considering each life cycle stage now. You know, we, we have steering groups where we work with our sort of alliance delivery partners, route and region to create win-win outcomes so that everybody's going on this journey together. So everybody is focused on on different elements at different times. But what we're trying to do is create an environment where 
we make the right decisions now or and plan for the future so that all of the all of those involved all of the stakeholders on the program are getting the benefits they need and we're ensuring those sort of positive outcomes as mentioned, we are sort of working with the the end users in terms of the uh, the network rail routes and regions to ensure that what we produce meets their future needs. So although we're we're trying to serve the needs of the the design the construction program today, we're also very cognizant of the needs of the the end users. So we're trying to build that in as part of the work we're doing. So we spoke earlier about the work involved in getting acceptance to allow a digital twin to be adopted. How long do you think it will be before a digital twin becomes a natural part of construction projects? And, and perhaps what are the barriers that exist to prevent us getting to that stage? Now, that's a really, really interesting question. You know, I think that, you know, we can use TIU as a as a good example for other projects. I think it will be, I don't think we've, we've solved everything. I think we're on a journey, like a lot of programmes at the moment, we're learning, we're evolving and, and improving as we go forward. But I think it will... TOE will serve as that sort of class-leading example uh, for other projects to, to take and learn from. And over time, we're going to get more and more of these uh, examples, not just from the rail sector, but from other other industries, whether that be water, highways, and really uh, sort of good examples and different examples. But ultimately, a lot of a lot of this learning, a lot of this innovation is cross-sector and can be shared between uh, between sectors. I think. What we need to do as well is, in short, for this to become sort of embedded more going forward, it's embracing it, not just digital, but digital, digital twin, all things digital, as part of the project philosophy from the outset, you know, the culture and the ways of working that it's that it's ingrained. It's not just something that we do in addition to everything else. It, it's fundamental to how we work. It's in the DNA of the project or the program need to ensure that everybody as well, you know, particularly on large, complex infrastructure, and, and infrastructure projects are getting more and more complex, ensuring that all users uh, and, and all interested parties are going on that journey together, really difficult to do, particularly when you've got aligned structures and so on, to take everybody on that journey, ensure people are aligned and pulling in the same direction and not creating duplicate systems and shadow systems as well. So again, that's a, that's a real challenge as part of this journey. But also ensuring we have the right contractual mechanisms and incentivization in place to encourage innovation uh, will be another element. So it's ensuring that I think the way we deliver these projects is changing. The the tools available, the ways of working are changing at pace never seen before. I think we just need to make sure that everything moves in step or, or tries to move in step on this journey, so that we leverage the the best capabilities out of the. Uh, uh, at the digital capabilities that we have uh, available to us today and in the future. So taking all of this learning forward then, what advice would you give to people who haven't yet adopted digital twins but are starting to look at the technology? And are there maybe any common pitfalls to avoid or other projects that the industry should look to and learn from? Every every project will go for its own uh, evolution and its own own learning, but there are some some good points to start that I I definitely share that, that have helped us and, and benefited us as a as a program. So one of the things that TIU uh, and Network Rail is part of is the Infrastructure Client Group, the Digital Transformation Task Group. It's a group of client organisations that share best practice around uh, digital innovation and uh, digital transformation. So uh, that's clients from across sector. And again, that cross-sectoral, uh, it's not just sharing experience within the rail sector, it's sharing experience across all sectors. Everybody's going on a journey at the moment. Everyone's at different stages. Some people are stronger in some areas. 
and actually having a forum where you can be part of and share that learning and, and uh, development is really, really important. Also embracing uh, things like Project 13 and using digital uh, as an enabler as part of that. A few other things I guess I, I, I've learned as well as part of this, you know, don't focus on what a digital twin is, sort of touching back on our earlier part of the conversation. You, know, you could spend, you could, there is a risk that you focus far too much on, on what it is, but I would suggest much more focus on, on, on what you want to get from it, sort of, you know, why, you know, it's, what are the outcomes you're looking for rather than the definition of it itself? So that, that's something I would, I would really recommend for the, for the listeners. Also have a vision, but be realistic. I mentioned before about, uh, we had really great leadership support, but we did have to back that up with proof of concept, minimal viable products to engage people and build that enthusiasm, take them on the journey, show them the art of the possible. So developing proofs, proof of concepts and so on has been, been really valuable for us. And I suppose the final one, and, and nobody likes to ever sort of talk about failure, but what I would recommend as well is not, not everything's going to work out, particularly when you're pushing the, the boundaries of innovation. So if things aren't working, you know, just, just move on, but learn from it. But don't be afraid to try for fear of failure, uh, because that's how we'll get some of our best innovation and, uh, and move the industry forwards. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that about sharing failures and things, because I think that's the one thing that people are scared of in the industry, but otherwise the same mistakes get repeated. So that's really interesting. And thanks for joining us today, Steve. We wish you all the very best for delivery of the TransPanon upgrade. It's definitely a project we're going to be following closely in NC and perhaps again in a future episode of the Engineers Collective too. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective. Now let's cross the Atlantic to Minnesota to join Barrett Lovelace, who is Director of Unmanned Aircraft Systems and Artificial Intelligence and reality modelling with Collins Engineers. Barrett is a licensed professional engineer and has over 25 years of bridge design and inspection experience. He's designed over 50 bridges and has performed over 3,000 bridge inspections. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Barrett. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me and highlighting our project. So your project, the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis, is a little bit different to a lot of the award winners as it's not a new build project, but actually a rehabilitation one instead. And also, despite it winning the road and rail asset performance category, it is actually no longer a real bridge either. So can you tell us the history of the bridge and how its use has evolved over time? Sure. So the uh, Stone Arch Bridge was built in 1883 by James J. Hill for his Great Northern Railroad and was pretty integral to the growth of the, the city of Minneapolis and uh, Minnesota in general. It's a masonry arch bridge that crosses the Mississippi River in downtown Minneapolis and probably the most historically significant bridge in, in Minnesota. Uh, it's a large bridge, it's over 2,000 feet long and contains over 100,000 tons of stone. And it served as a railroad bridge until about the early 1960s. And then in the early 1990s, it was converted to a pedestrian bridge. And now it um, serves the public for pedestrians and probably is the most heavily used 
pedestrian bridge in Minnesota and a pretty recognizable icon for the city of Minneapolis and for the state of Minnesota. So it certainly sounds like a fascinating project to be involved in. But what were the problems of the bridge that led to the need for it to be rehabilitated? Uh, So our company, Collins Engineers, has performed underwater inspections of the bridge for for many years. And a couple of years ago, uh, we we started to document some mortar loss on the bridge that was um, significant enough to trigger a closer look from the Minnesota Department of Transportation. So they studied the bridge and ultimately decided it was time for a full rehabilitation of the bridge. Uh, not not because it's unsafe, but just to ensure that the bridge serves the public for for many years to come. So it's just uh, you know due for a a rehab project, and so that's what um, started this process. And how did those problems then translate into challenges when it kind of came to defining what was needed in terms of inspection data to plan and cost the work? Well, I think the the biggest challenge of the bridge is just the sheer size of the bridge. So it starts to become a real challenge when you're trying to document things like cracks and mortar loss, um, which are real finite things. But you have this this massive bridge. And so the the surface area makes it difficult to capture all that information using traditional methods, which um, would would typically involve just pen and paper and, and sketches and notes um, and maybe using a handheld camera. So that was the big challenge is, is how do we capture all that data efficiently and um, effectively. So your team used context capture to generate a high fidelity 3D model from over 13,000 images of the bridge as part of the inspection work. What led you to use that approach rather than the more traditional inspection techniques and, and what were the benefits of doing that? Um, so our, our approach was kind of twofold. The first was to make the inspection more efficient um, so that the the less time we spend in the field um, taking notes saves the Minnesota Department of Transportation money, but, um, but it also, and maybe even more importantly, it's much less disruptive to the public. So that was the, the first thing. The, the second was we wanted to collect more data on the bridge than a, a typical in-depth inspection. And I think we estimated when we were complete, we had about 100,000 times more data than we would have with a traditional method. And so the benefits of that are um, the, the data is not only, not only do we get more data, but that data is easier to navigate than the, the traditional methods as well. So could you expand on how you captured that many images? Because 13,000 images is a lot to to get. What kind of techniques did you use? Yeah, that's a good question. 13,000 is a lot. And um, we we used the drone for almost all of the the data capture. And the drone was pre-programmed with all of our missions before we went in the field. And basically, the drone just flies itself um, and takes all those pictures and um, so it, it actually goes pretty fast once you're in the field and you can collect about 400 pictures per flight. So it, it, uh, it goes pretty fast. It took us about a week to collect all the data in the field. So how long would it take you to capture that much data if you were doing things manually? Well, it's, it's even hard to compare just because um, 
it would probably take longer to do it with our traditional methods. But I think more importantly is just we're collecting so much more information, so so much faster than our traditional methods. So had you used drones on other projects before? Was this the first time you'd used it to this extent? Um, no, it's not. It's not the first time we've used it. I would I would say it's the first time we've used it to this extent and used it throughout the workflows. But we've done um, research for the Minnesota Department of Transportation on this. So um, one of the things that's kind of um, neat or fun is is you know we do the research and now we're able to show how that research is paying off on an actual project. So your inspection work also benefited from the drawdown of the Mississippi River. Was that a lucky coincidence or was the inspection work planned to take advantage of the low water levels? No, it, yeah, it, it actually was just a lucky coincidence. Um, we had already collected all of the data on the bridge and then uh, we, di- we found out that the Army Corps of Engineers was drawing down the river in that area and they were doing it to inspect some of their own facilities. Um, but we decided to jump on the, on the opportunity and we um, recollected all of the data on the portions of the bridge that were over the water so that we're, we then were able to collect the, the areas of the bridge that are typically underwater. And so now we have that data and we're using that throughout the design. So once you had actually gathered then all the data, you used iTwin applications to create a real-time model of the structure. Um, Can you explain a bit about how that technology works and then I suppose how it benefited the project team and the savings it delivered for the project? Um, Sure. So we we take overlapping high-resolution images with the drones and then we and then the the context capture software post processes all of that data, and it basically uses trigonometry to create three D models from these two D images um, based on the the positions of the images and and key points of the images. And so not only do we have like an image of every inch of the bridge, we we typically have like six to ten images of of every location from different perspectives and angles. Uh, we also use ground control to help locate and, and scale the models accurately. And the, the benefits are extensive, but basically we have this digital copy of the bridge that anyone on the team can access through their computer or even through a mixed reality environment using the, the Microsoft HoloLens. And having this digital twin of the bridge allows our designers and decision makers to perform kind of a virtual visit of the bridge whenever they need to in order to make better decisions and and reduce project risks. I think having this information at our fingertips gives everybody on the team the confidence and prevents engineers from having to make conservative decisions based on a lack of enough data. So we spoke earlier to Steve about how they use digital twins to continue delivery of his project during the pandemic with people working remotely. Did the digital techniques you use for the Stone Arch Bridge also help your team when it came to working remotely? Uh, yes, for sure. So by, by having a, a digital copy of the bridge, anyone um, from any location can basically visit the bridge in a, in a uh, digital manner. So it really breaks down barriers, especially uh, with everybody working remotely and not maybe being able to, to travel because of the, the pandemic. But also, you know, people that um, couldn't visit the bridge because of maybe a disability or just the the location, 
um, they can still access the bridge. They can still provide their input. Um, somebody uh, that maybe you know isn't somebody who wants to perform rope access inspections or be in an, an inspection can, um, vehicle can can still provide their perspective and their expertise. And so I think it it brings in a lot of different people's perspectives because they can see the bridge firsthand or almost firsthand, I guess. And, and that, I think, benefits everyone on the project. So it really opens up the inspection industry to a much broader group of people. You could perhaps attract different talent into the industry in the future. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think um, it's been kind of a draw, too, on our end, because it, it's, a, it's a new way of doing things. And it definitely attracts a different uh, mindset, kind of a more uh, person that's more technology-focused. So I also understand the data you collected was used more widely than just by your project team too. Can you explain how the technology you deployed allowed the data to be used by stakeholders and how that benefited the overall project as well? Um, sure. So all the data and the models that we created are are stored on the Bentley ProjectWise cloud. And everyone on the team has access to this information. So anybody can go um, look at the the models anytime they need to. And while our initial intent was to use it for the structural design, we found that many of the other team members have utilized it for things like hydraulics, some of the historical portions of the project, uh, environmental, and, and even public involvement. So a lot more people or disciplines started using the data, I think, than we originally anticipated, which was, which was good. So you could really use it for communicating with the public about what you're planning to do so they can really understand why the work's necessary as well. Yes, absolutely, because it gives everybody a, um, you know, a, a good perspective on the bridge and a good understanding of, of what the bridge condition is and what the site is. And looking ahead, then procurement of the bridge rehabilitation work is the next step for the scheme. So how do you think the digital approach to the work so far will benefit um, and kind of provide greater certainty over the cost and program for the work? Yeah, so we we definitely plan on um, sharing this information with the contractors um, during the, the bidding process. And contractors often have to make assumptions about a project um, just based on um, you know, not having enough information. And typically when they have to make that assumption, it has to be a conservative assumption. So they maybe have to, to pad their, their costs in areas that maybe they're not really sure about it. So I think by providing the contractors this information, we think that we're going to see a savings in construction costs, but also reduce risks for things like change orders during the construction of the project. Yeah, so they will actually just be working with so much more information than previously. Absolutely, yes. Especially when you we think about our traditional deliverable to a contractor is a black and white line drawing of the bridge. And now they have this um, digital twin that they can access. So that's um, just much more information for them to be able to make decisions. So do you think a contractor might be able to come with an alternative design if they've got all, all this extra data, they can actually see it and be able to put forward different ideas? Yes, absolutely. And we want the, we want that our contractors to, to be doing that. Um, and I think that, you know, in the past, there's maybe a stereotype that contractors aren't as sophisticated as engineering companies, but that's not true anymore. And 
they love it when we are able to provide them this kind of data because because they are are very good at utilizing it and planning their their work based on the data. And are there more plans in the pipeline to use other digital technologies on the project as it progresses sort of through to construction? And can you explain the potential benefits of that? Um, yeah, so we, we are planning on using it throughout the project and not only just for the contractor, but also for um, the inspection staff, the, the um, uh, project managers, so they can use it to plan the construction and coordinate the construction as well. And what um, what kind of benefits do you think that will bring in terms of, I suppose, the day to day operating of the the project? Yeah, we've seen uh, we've seen a lot of things on some of our smaller projects. Like um, contractors will use it for planning where to where to set their equipment. You know, where can they fit their equipment um, if they need to do some work? Maybe how far do, does the, a crane reach? And they can do all of that right in the model in in 3D. And so maybe, you know, having less chance that they bring a crane out that turns out it doesn't reach far enough. Um, so they can use the model to, to figure all of that stuff out during construction. So when are you expecting construction on site to, to get underway and how long do you think the work will actually take? Um, the project length is scheduled for... Uh, two years, and we're planning on bidding it next summer uh, for work starting the the uh, following spring. Yeah, so plenty of time to come on the project. So mm-hmm. can you share with us some of the key lessons you've learned through implementation of the technology so far on the Stone Arch Bridge and how perhaps how it's changed your firm's approach to other inspection work? Yeah, the, the, this project has really helped us develop our experience with um, collecting the data and processing the data and helped us define workflows for using this technology. And now we're we're using it on many projects nationwide um, so that we can realize this benefit for uh, our other clients and for other uh, different types of project. And it's, it's really fundamentally changing how we do things. And, um, and the technology is pretty rapidly evolving. Um, so we can use it on more and more different types of projects. Um, and inspections and and rehab workflows are are changing rapidly as well as we're using these digital twins and also um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I think the way we do projects is is already changing very quickly and it's it's looking very different than it has in the past. So if you had the technology you've got today when you were first starting the project, is there anything you would do differently? Do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there there are things we definitely would do differently. I think that the the software has evolved so fast that even in this like you know short it's been about a year since we collected the data, the software and things have improved uh, uh, quite a bit in that time and the things we can do with it. I think one thing we would um, do or take advantage of is flying the bridge earlier and pre-populating as much of the inspection information in the models as we can before we go in the field so that when we go in the field, we can focus our efforts even more. Um, but even, you know, that, that's an improvement, but even the workflow that we used uh, did work pretty well. And great. Thank you for joining us today, Barrett. Yours was a really interesting project and a really real deserving winner at the Year in Infrastructure Awards. So please, please do stay in touch with us as your project progresses. It sounds like we've got a couple of years to follow that one. 
Catherine and I and the rest of the NCE team will be back soon with another episode of the Engineers Collective. We'll be exploring the latest industry news, innovation and discussing how engineering holds the key to solving many challenges facing society today. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash the Engineers Collective.